I'm Kim Raycon, and I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Harper Academics podcast, Harper Academic Calling. Our podcast is designed to give educators and students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers, about their books. Harper Academic Calling, Rachel Slade. On October 1st, 2015, Hurricane Joaquin barreled into the Bermuda Triangle and swallowed the container ship El Faro whole, resulting in the worst American shipping disaster in 35 years. In Into the Raging Sea, as she recounts the final 24 hours on board, Slade depicts the officer's anguish and fear. Taking a hard look at America's aging merchant marine fleet, Slade also reveals the truth about modern shipping, a cutthroat industry plagued by razor-thin profits and ever more violent hurricanes fueled by global warming. Relying on hundreds of exclusive interviews with family members and maritime experts, as well as the words of the crew members themselves, whose conversations were captured by the ship's data recorder, journalist Rachel Slade unravels the mystery of the sinking of El Faro. Into the Raging Sea is available now in hardcover from our imprint Echo. So today on the phone with us, we have Rachel Slade, author of the book Into the Raging Sea. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Kim. It's a pleasure to be here. Your book was a totally fascinating read. I tore through it in, I think, three or four days. It it was a nonfiction book that I couldn't put it down. So I wonder if we could start with you just telling us a little bit about what Into the Raging Sea covers. In 2015, a 790-foot American container ship sailed from Jacksonville to Puerto Rico, and on that run, she sailed straight into a Category 3 hurricane and went down. And what's amazing about this story is that we were actually able to recover the ship's black box in 15,000 feet of water, and that box contained the longest black box recording in history, 26 hours of recordings of conversations on the bridge leading up to the ship's final moments. It's really incredible. Yeah, it really it really is. And I knew nothing really about American cargo shipping. I know a little bit about the weather. Three sort of big things that seem to be important issues in your book are how American cargo shipping works a piece of legislation called the Jones Act, and the technology that was on board El Faro in terms of its weather forecasting. So I'm wondering if you could talk us through a little bit about each of those three things. Sure. So like you, I had no understanding of shipping when I started this. And so I really had to kind of throw myself into a completely new topic. That required me, of course, to dig deep into history because I believe that everything that's happening now, of course, uh, is is based on the, the past. So I really needed to understand history. And so what I found was that American shipping is unique. We actually created some of our first laws, America's first laws, around protecting shipping because there was a time in the late 18th century as they were starting to you know figure out what is america and what laws we needed when shipping actually drove about 90 percent of the federal revenue so they really needed to protect their merchants and, and their shippers 
What emerged eventually was the Merchant Marine Act of 1920, which we, um, in conversation, called the Jones Act. And it's really a three-pronged piece of legislation. It requires that any ship that delivers goods between American ports, so from American port to American port, must be American-owned, American-built, and predominantly American-crewed. The Jones Act actually has helped and hurt American shipping. One thing that's really great about the Jones Act is, or what it was designed to do and what it did actually end up doing during World War II and the Vietnam War and the Korean War is it meant that we had basically a working shipping industry that could be conscripted during wartime to carry material and to carry troops. So actually during World War II, a lot of U.S. merchant marine ships were sent over in both theaters, the Pacific and the Atlantic, to, to carry this stuff to aid the war. And um, although U.S. merchant mariners are not part of our armed forces, they suffered the largest casualty of any armed forces group. And they didn't receive veterans' benefits. That's something I just like to mention because, the, the, you know, <laughs> U.S. Merchant Marine, we, I think we, we often don't think about who they are or the important work that they're doing, mm -hmm. but they were essentially the backbone of, of our war efforts. And um, now they are back in the backbone, one of the backbones of, of our economy. We have to move goods around. That's, you know, we're mostly an import um, country now. So many goods are coming from Asia. And these are the people who are helping make sure that our shelves on, in Walmart and Target and everywhere else and our cars and everything else are equipped um, and running and, and filled. That stuff spends a lot of time on ships. And, and you asked about the technology aboard this particular ship. So the one thing that's happening to the Merchant Marine, and it's been going on for a really long time, actually since World War II, is that shippers, American shippers, have been fleeing the American flag. So to get around the requirements of having to build their ships here and, you know, follow U.S. laws, U.S. shipping laws, they're actually registering ships in foreign countries. That means that the U.S. Merchant Marine is shrinking, 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 and now we have a tiny fleet, just a couple of hundred commercial ships, and that means there are fewer jobs. And by the way, the American fleet is now one of the oldest fleets in the world, which gets us back to El Faro, which was a 40-year-old ship. And if, if you think, oh, 40-year-old ship, okay, maybe that's normal. It's not. It was, the El Faro was actually 28 years older than the average ship in America's ports. So what was your research process like for this book? Because I imagine that you probably had to do a lot of interviews. Um, you certainly did a lot of, of transcript reading as well since the ship's black box was recovered. So what, what kind of stuff did you do to, to sort of gain the, the facts and the backstory and the history that you needed? So first I had to obviously find out what shipping was all about. And, and like I said, I, I took a historical perspective, but I also um, immediately started finding the websites that were current. That And there were a lot of aggregator websites that focused specifically on shipping news. That was really helpful so that I could understand the landscape and what, what 
these shippers and what mariners are up against. Another really, really helpful kind of passive thing that I did, so just kind of reading and lurking and watching, was there were mariners' chat rooms that were public, so I could just kind of eavesdrop on mariners' conversations and get a sense of the kinds of things that were bothering them, the kinds of things that they were enjoying, how they speak to each other. It was a, it was so enlightening to be able to do that. But the real breakthrough for me was um, when I first went to the hearings. So there were actually t- uh, three hearings. They were two weeks each. They were many months apart. And so I went down to Jacksonville and I sat in that room. These hearings were jointly conducted by the National Transportation Safety Board and, and the U.S. Coast Guard. And in that room was essentially everybody who I needed to talk to. And so those folks were either on the stand, they were shipping experts, they were um, executives from the shipping company, they were mariners, or they were presiding over the hearings, you know, the Coast Guard people and the National Transportation Safety people, or they were the families who sat there in, in the seat and watched the whole thing unfold or they were actually um, expert mariners who had nothing to do with that particular case, but came because because this was the biggest maritime disaster, the deadliest maritime disaster in more than 35 years. So a lot of these former mariners and, and former actually military people came because, because we hadn't had a huge um, investigation like this in decades, and they wanted to see how justice would work in this kind of new political climate. So it was really, really fascinating. Did you get any resistance or any pushback once people learned, you know, what what you were doing, what your interest in in being there was? Yes. (laughs) I mean, certainly there were people who did not want to talk to me. There were some family members who refused to talk to the press just as a a rule. Mm -hmm. Um, In in this climate, so mariners, many of them, of course, are extremely thoughtful. But these are America's working people. They're they're in the unions, um, but they're America's working people. And so, as you can imagine, some of them, of course, are very suspicious of media and journalists. And you know, when people said, "I don't want to talk to her," I was fine with that. I mean, that's that's a choice, obviously, that people made. There were there were some folks who I really did want to talk to and eventually I was able to but yeah of course there's always pushback and um, you know there was like the head of the union he didn't want to talk to me and I understood and he was very polite I think you know people are generally polite Mm -hmm. but they're suspicious fortunately I really had a major breakthrough when I found a mariner who'd been fired by the shipping company a couple years before the sinking of El Faro He knew a lot of the mariners who were on El Faro who had passed away, and he was really angry. And, you know, when you're a journalist and you find somebody who's, you know, pretty deeply connected to your story, but also really angry, like, that's the perfect source. And he was also retired, so he he was no longer a stakeholder, and he, he was no longer concerned about his job. And what was great about him was that he had time. And I talked to this guy, and I still talk to this guy almost every day, sometimes for hours. And it was so great. He had been a chief mate on the sister ship of El Faro, so he really, really knew that company. He had been a, he, he'd been a mariner for more than 30 years. He had the language. 
he had the psychology, you know, he had the whole attitude. He had a real great perspective on what it's like to be a mariner. And being able to talk to him over and over and over again, and, you know, he loosened up and he had so many stories, that gave me great insight into the profession and how people think. And also the anger, you know, he, he felt he could be honest with me and share his anger about this accident. And I felt he was speaking for so many people. And so that empowered me to keep going. I knew that people were angry. I knew that people wanted the official, the real story told, you know, in contrast to the official story, which would blame the captain. Mm-hmm. These conversations with him and uh, and his friends uh, and others who, who didn't want to be identified um, really empowered me to keep going and be honest and tell tell the story that, that I saw and that they saw. So one of the ways that you told the story was through using the VDR transcript, the transcript from the black box. This, to me, is one of the most fascinating parts of your whole book, is how you used their actual dialogue and and used it as a way to shape and structure your story, at least from my perspective as as a reader. What was that experience like reading the conversations and essentially the, the, the last words of these, of these 33 people on board. It was incredibly powerful. These people, of course, did not know that they were going to die. Their mm-hmm. conversations they thought were private. They knew that there were microphones in, in the ceiling of the bridge of the ship. But, of course, you never think that anybody's going to listen to this. Right. Um, this, this thing is constantly recording, right? So trip after trip after trip, it just overwrites itself. So it's not like a permanent document of every voyage. So these were casual conversations as people got increasingly anxious about the decisions that the captain was making and as they were um, clearly heading closer and closer to a storm that was escalating. The conversations are fascinating because at moments they were banal, which in itself is is so eerie. Yeah, it's creepy. Yeah, it's creepy because right? it's yeah, because as a, as a reader, you know, you you know, you know how it ends, right? You know, you know the ship, yeah. you know the ship sinks. And here are people that are talking about everyday kind of everyday things. And you just Yeah, think, like really after at the at the very last couple of moments, the one of the helmsmen who's diabetic. Mhm. Asked for coffee yeah. with Splenda. Do you remember that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So here he's still thinking, thinking about his diabetes, and you know that in a couple of minutes he's he's not going to be on this earth anymore. And yeah. it's those moments that are incredible. There were also a few other moments that really, really moved me. It was about fifteen minutes. Uh, sorry, fifteen hours before the ship sunk, and one of the um, the third mate and, and the helmsman, Jack Jackson, are on the bridge. They're alone. They're looking out to sea. It's a hot afternoon. They're just they're just driving the ship. They're just, you know, contemplating life. But they know that they're heading into the storm. And they start to talk about storms past that they've personally experienced. And I always found these conversations, because they happened a lot on the bridge that day, I always found these conversations really fascinating because these are people who have actually been through hurricanes, been through horrible storms, and the way they describe them is unique. You know, this is this is sailors talking. Mm-hmm. The way they describe the storm, the way they describe how the boat handled in the storm, the way they describe the panic and the fear. This one particular monologue 
by able body uh human body is human um jack jackson was so profound because he said straight out that at that time he was speaking of a, a prior storm that he had been in that they saw death mm-hmm. and he described it very very vividly what it's like to be in a storm and think you're going to die it was incredible and and i i that was one of the pieces that I just had to pull out and write and it just gave me chills because that would be his fate in less than a day. Yeah, and what what was it like as a as a writing experience? I mean, did you did you choose to right away once you had this transcript did you automatically know yes, this is, you know, yes, I'm going to use this as a, as a structural way to tell this story to use their voices to tell this story. How did how did that process work for you? Well, when I originally started exploring the story of Alfaro, we didn't have the transcript, and I didn't know if we would ever get it. Mm -hmm. When we got the transcript, which was actually more than a year after the ship went down, so at that point I had already been investigating it for a year, I was like, holy cow, oh my God, I can't believe we have this. This is incredible. Because I knew family members of the people who were now coming back from the grave to tell their story. So I had a, I had had a bit of a sense of these people and now here they were coming alive again. It was incredible. The thing that of course I had to do, the burden on me, was to contextualize mm-hmm. who they were, you know, so that these weren't just, you know, voices, that these were people. I knew who they were, I knew, I knew their families, I wanted to do justice to them. And I also had to imagine, you know, what it would be like on a bridge when they said these words, what were they looking at? I needed to be fair to them. Um, I certainly didn't want to to portray them in, an, uh, you know, uh, in a way that, that wasn't accurate. And so it was a, it was a lot of pressure to, to be fair, but also to tell the story. But of course, I knew from the beginning, you know, as soon as we got that transcript, that this would this would become the thread, the narrative thread, these words, and how powerful it was that we actually had them. I think, I mean, there are many moments for me when I read it that were especially chilling, thinking thinking of, you know, the outcome and what happened. But I have to say, like, the, the very last line of recorded dialogue that, that you include is the, is the captain's line, it's time to come this way. And for me as a reader, like that always sent chills down my spine, but it was also like trying to imagine like what was going on in that in that moment, you know, where were they? Um, what does this way mean? I mean, it means so many things, you know, now that we sort of know, we know the outcome of the story, we know what happened, we know that all of these lives were lost. But it really was one of the most fascinating parts of Into the Raging Sea for me was to was to have these people's words and to have them speak about their fears and anxieties and and moments of hesitation in themselves being part of this crew but still trying to sort of keep the order and in, in the hierarchy of the ship. Exactly. Yeah. And you know, interesting thing about that, I couldn't. You know, when I saw that transcript and when I saw those last words, I mean, you know, when you said when you just read them again. I mean, it, it is absolutely chilling, mm-hmm. and but 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 like something out of literature. And in fact, one of the books that I read when I was 
learning about shipping was a book by B. Traven called The Death Ship, which came out, I think, in about 1920. It's a great book if you haven't read it. it it's rare. No, I, I, you know, nobody's read it but me, probably. <laughs> but um, what's really strange it is, is it is about a shipwreck. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a novel. And what's really strange is that it ends up just two characters on a raft, and they're definitely going to die. They've been on a raft for days. They're not going to be saved. And the final words in that book are the same. Really? Oh, that's that's creepy. That's pretty creepy. <laughs> it was so strange. And I, I already had read the transcript when I read The Death Ship, and I was like, this is strange. And there's so much strange about this story. I mean, I'm sure you remember my final chapter, which is just about numerology, which, yep. you know, a lot, a lot of people are fascinated that I included that. Um, but I, so again, this is this, this last chapter is really about some of the strange things that have happened since the ship was lost mm-hmm. to family members. And what you need to remember, at least for me, what was most important and the reason I included that is because shipping, men, ships, the sea and storms is one of the oldest human dramas, right? We have, we have the Odyssey, we mm-hmm. have the story of Noah, we have Shakespeare, the Tempest, we have Moby Dick. This is one of those absolutely timeless storms. I mean, sorry, timeless stories. And there is absolutely something mystical about the ocean even now, mm-hmm. right? It's our final frontier. And sailors, just like ball players and, and some other groups, are very, very superstitious. And so while, you know, they seem very practical and they're, they're just driving their ships from place to place, loading and unloading, they, there is a mystical quality about the men and women who choose to work at sea. And so I thought it was incredibly appropriate, especially given all these strange things that I uncovered after the ship sank, to include that final chapter about the mysticism of the number 33 and the things that happened after we lost these mariners. Yeah, because, it, it, and this will sound very odd to say about such a tragedy, but, but in this particular case for the loss of this particular ship, 33 is essentially the perfect number. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's a strange and beautiful number. Um, again, I don't, I don't want folks to think I'm wacky. <laughs> I, I'm, I, I do want to stress that because this is about men, women, ships, the sea, and storms, we're tapping into really, really deep, deep human history here. There is an official report, of course. The NTSB and the Coast Guard released an official report. In their reports, they blamed uh, Michael Davidson, who's who's the captain. Why do you think this accident happened? Out of all of the work that you've done, all of the research, all of the people that you talk to, what are the reasons that we lost El Faro? Obviously, it's a complicated story. It is. It is. And we knew, we knew that Captain Davidson would be blamed. Mm-hmm. All of these investigations end up blaming a person. So there was no question, which is another reason why the mariners who spoke to me, who were willing to talk to me, were very interested in me writing the story so that I could tell a more nuanced tale. This was an accident waiting to happen. Mm -hmm. The shipping company was, um, 
downsizing. Um, they were getting rid of their most experienced mariners and um, onshore personnel. They were cutting costs everywhere they could. Onshore, the support staff was very preoccupied getting um, new ships ready. They did not have proper human resources in place to um, take care of new staffing issues, and therefore Captain Davidson, they were not communicating with Captain Davidson about why he hadn't been promoted to the new ships. And so he was absolutely beside himself with worry that he was about to lose his job. And keep in mind, these are the few good, well-paying union jobs left in America, but there aren't a lot of captain's positions left because, like I said, the U.S. Merchant Marine is shrinking so dramatically. It's really upsetting. So here's a man, he had high expenses, um, but he had a good-paying job that he knew he was about to lose, and he felt that this was an opportunity for him, sailing through or near this hurricane, cutting it close. But getting those goods delivered on time would prove to the company that he was the kind of master that they needed for their new fleet of ships. It was a way for him to prove himself. Mm -hmm. But then don't forget, too, that we have a 40-year-old ship. And mm -hmm. it's not just that you can't repair this ship. They were actually milling parts for it because you can't buy parts for it anymore. And remember, there are many systems on board the ship, not just the engine, but there's, for example, the bilge systems. So if you have a leak, you have to bilge the ship. But those bilge systems never worked well. Now they're 40 years old. Um, and um, so you have, you have an old ship. But the other problem with having an old ship is that it had grandfathered equipment on it, including the life-saving equipment, mm -hmm. which in this case entailed open lifeboats, which are illegal on hulls, ship hulls built after 1986. Plus, the very design of the ship uh, fit, met 1960s standards, but could not have been built today. Yeah, it's. It seemed to me after I got done reading into the raging sea, I went and I I read the NTSB report and the Coast Guard's report on the accident, and it seemed that while there was there were some acknowledgments to me laying laying the the bulk of the blame on Captain Davidson seemed a bit um, a bit unfair given all of given all of the circumstances, and that was I think. For me, as someone who is who really has no connection to it other than I read I read a book about it, to me that seemed a bit a bit unfair. And it's interesting to go through the different reasons because, as you as you said, you know, it is it is a complex question, and it's a, it's a complex way of how do we assign blame for this for this tragedy that that we lost 33, 33 people. Well, I mean, it was inevitable that they were going to blame the captain. As I said, that was a decision from the start. If you go to any of these reports, you'll generally find, especially in maritime, it always comes down to the captain. Mm -hmm. And and so we knew that was going to happen. I think the other thing I just wanted to mention here was um, our seduction, the seduction of technology. Mm -hmm. In this case, that played a huge role. We talked, you mentioned weather forecasting. We didn't get to discuss the technology board, so can I, if it's okay, I'd just sure. like to talk a little bit about that. Sure. So um, I actually took a container ship across the Atlantic from Italy to Baltimore this summer, last summer. 
um, so that I could really see how conversations worked on the bridge, you know, what it's like to serve a four-hour or six-hour watch, what it's like to see the pilot boat coming in or to see sight of land, loading and unloading, all that sort of stuff. So mm -hmm. I got a really a much better sense of, of shipping by just, you know, participating firsthand. But I also got to see how weather comes into a ship firsthand. So there, there are two ways that, we, that LFRO got forecasting information. One was from the National Hurricane Center, and that came out of a dot matrix printer, believe it or not. <laughs> um, you know, there's a sheet of, there, there's like a roll of paper, and it just continuously prints out when updates or advisories come in, and, you know, it comes to the bridge, and the, mayor, the, the helmsman, you know, will pull a piece of paper off, and then the officers will study it. But it's all alphanumeric, right? So it, it it gives you the coordinates of the storm and it gives you wind speed and that sort of thing, but it's all very, it's all alphanumeric. It's just numbers and letters on page. The other weather forecasting system that, I have, that they had on board this ship and on board now almost every ship, third-party weather uh, forecasting systems, are gorgeous. They're very intuitive. They show you a map. They show you the storm. They they draw concentric circles around the storm. Um, the colors, in different colors, indicate wind speed around the storm. And it's so seductive because you can put in your um, route, your heading, and the software will um, generate your voyage. So you can so the captain actually did this, you know, he said, All right, it's it's Wednesday afternoon, I'm gonna click through to tomorrow and click through to Friday and look the storm, it's gonna move north and north and north away from me and my ship is gonna go southeast, 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 and I will eventually get to Puerto Rico and he even had a time of arrival. You know, it's so much like Google Maps, you know, when we do that with a car and Google Maps tells you you're gonna get there at six thirty eight, you know. <laughs> yeah. It's very seductive. But it was completely wrong. This weather forecasting system was actually based on the National Hurricane Center's forecast, but there was a time lag. So it took a long time for, for that second system to repackage the original forecast. And so ultimately, the information that he had was garbage because he was dealing with a fast-moving storm that defied the, the weather forecasters. And he was he was looking at a complete bunk, and so it it confirmed what he wanted to believe, which was that the storm was going to pull away north and he was going to scoot south, and that's a big reason why he cleaved so close to the hurricane's eye because he was so convinced that the hurricane was somewhere else that it was much further north, when in fact it was not. So I just have one more question for you, and it's a question that we ask all of the guests on our podcast. Uh, since this is designed primarily for teachers and their students, who was your favorite teacher? <laughs> okay, <You're, laughs> let me think. I was not ready for that one. <laughs> since I was really little, I read everything I could get my hands on. I read, I would read like you know, ad copy on a Kleenex box. I would read every single magazine in the house and, and we got tons of magazines because my mother had an office in the house. So she had a waiting room. And um, so, you know, everything came in. People, Us Weekly, New Yorker, um, National Geographic, didn't matter. I consumed 
magazines like some people consume, I don't know, boxes of chocolate. Like I was an, a, an absolutely avid reader. I got books constantly and I would read those obviously. I mean, I can't stop reading. Like reading relaxes me. I read everything that's in front of me. I can't stop. So my first answer would be my best teacher was writing, <laughs> like all kinds of writing, just being able to consume writing. And I think just allowed me to understand story structure and different voices and, um, you know, how, how you tell a tale and what kind of tale I would want to write. So, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people say that, but in terms of an individual, my best teacher actually was an Irish woman in high school. She, she had a PhD. She was my teacher in junior year and she taught portrait of the artist, uh, James Joyce. Mm-hmm. Portrait of the artist, artist as a young man. And, um, you know, I didn't go to journalism school, so I, I have to go back to my English classes. But um, she was Irish, so she had a deep connection with James Joyce. And she was very strict, but her analysis was so rich and wonderful that it opened all the possibilities to me of what writing could do, what writing could be. And although that was fiction, and obviously I've pursued nonfiction, I think it was that love of analysis and love of words that she communicated to us that I just will never let go of. I mean, I knew I was loving reading, but she she introduced to me um, the idea that there was so much more that you could get out of a text. That was the first time I really understood that. That's great. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Great talking to you. You too. Bye-bye.